Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. All right. Well, welcome everybody to today's episode. Before we jump into this week's episode, we both felt like we needed to say a little something about the talk by Elder Holland at BYU um, from August 26th. We have a lot of thoughts, but because this isn't the focus of our episode today, we will try to be as brief as humanly possible. Um, Next week, we will be starting a new series. It's our LDS school series. It's all about going to LDS colleges, and we will be kicking it off with BYU Provo, where we do discuss this a little bit further um, with our two panelists. So tune in next week to hear more thoughts on that. But... We have a couple points that we wanted to make about the Elder Holland talk at BYU. Um, And the first thing we wanted to make known today is that even though we are not physically on BYU campus, we're not BYU students, alumni, or decision makers in any way, shape, or form at BYU, we stand 100% with our LGBTQ plus siblings at BYU. We see you. We hear you. We recognize that we can't fully grasp the depth of your pain or your suffering currently, and we are here for you. If you need it, I will bust you out of BYU like Rambo if necessary. I will, for real. I will do that. She will. She keeps her word. Um, Yes, we have been through a lot with our friends, even just in talking about this in the last couple of weeks. And we've been listening to everyone's stories and we've been trying to look for hope and possibilities in the future. And we know that a lot of people are stepping away either for a little while or permanently. And we hope that you're doing what is best for you spiritually and mentally, um, because those words were very hurtful, not just because they could be interpreted that way, but because they were passive aggressive and not ultimately kind or loving in any way. And while I am currently based in Utah, if you guys do need a hug, if you're vaccinated, I will come straight to your door. I actually don't think it was passive aggressive. I think it was aggressive aggressive. Yeah. (laughs) Because he kept bringing up musket fire. But that's the thing. That's the thing. Because that's such a very basic and Mormon and even like a Christian um, analogy that most people are going to just see it as passive aggressive. So I, 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 it definitely toes the line. I will accept that, but I do feel it's still slightly passive aggressive because it's saying, I love you, but this, so that's still being a little bit passive, but it's definitely very much on the more aggressive side. It is. I will definitely give you that. Um, Christianity loves a good war analogy, but the thing is when we're talking about love, that definitely has no place here. Um, and it's been bugging me a lot more over the last couple of years as I've begun to open my mind and open my heart more. And this was beyond the worst analogy that I've heard yet shared by any of our church leaders, especially from someone like Elder Holland. That actually leads perfectly into the second thing that I wanted to highlight about this talk, which is that LGBTQ plus students already have to endure an absurd amount of scrutiny and musket fire without an apostle arming the masses and fueling the fire. They don't need more. Um, But the other thing is that it was particularly disappointing and disheartening to hear that coming from Elder Holland. 
because he has been, at least more recently, a very vocal advocate for saints in the margins. And the fact that he was spewing the bigotry to the point of emphasizing that the university can lose accreditation and he wouldn't really care as long as they were defending their beliefs, that was a very big disappointing point that I don't think people are recognizing. That was extreme. Yes. And it's highly problematic for so many reasons. Like disappointing is like the, the baseline. And we're like, okay, yeah, that's disappointing. And then it can get so much worse if something like that did happen. Not just because, you know, that would be disappointing, but it would have very serious problems for so many people. And ultimately that would not bode well, I believe personally for BYU or any of the church schools. Um, And then actually one other thing that I was thinking of um, that I saw pointed out to me this week was that the church has a pretty good idea of where most of the church members stand. They've been sending out a lot of surveys in the last year, at least that I've been hearing about. I have not received any myself. I believe that they are sent out randomly um, to random people and they are asked on their political and their spiritual beliefs. And so the church has a has to have a decent idea on how much more liberal the younger generation has become. I firmly believe that Holland would be aware of something like that. So not only does he know that, and not only has he spoken for people um, who have been marginalized before, he decided to ignore all of that and spew that bigotry. And that's... It's infuriating. That's really what it is. It is. And I know I don't sound as angry anymore. I don't sound that angry, but I have been angry for the last few weeks. I'm just getting to the point where I'm so exhausted and I'm so drained. And I don't even want to think about this because of how upsetting it really is. I think it just stands for a really strong reminder that not everything in the church is going to be healthy for us. And... As we've said before, church leaders are great. We need them, but they're not always going to be speaking for God. Yeah. I think that we need to remember that it's okay to not be okay after this talk. We were not okay whatsoever after this talk. We had many lengthy discussions together with our friends, with other people, and we were not okay. Um, For me personally, it made me feel like the apostles were gatekeeping the way to the savior. Like for years, and particularly within the last year, the apostles and the prophet have been calling for greater love, empathy, and Christ-like behavior among the body of the church. But then to have Holland turn around and basically be like, LOL, but not to the gays, it felt like the apostles were equally being hypocritical and blocking the path to the savior instead of directing us to the savior like they're supposed to be doing. And so for me, I could not feel the spirit whatsoever in that talk. Read it a couple times, could not feel the spirit or understand the spirit of the talk whatsoever in any sort of positive light. And so I really do feel like Elder Holland was speaking as a man and not as an apostle or as as a disciple of Jesus Christ at that point in time. At least that's what I've been able to figure out over the last couple of weeks as I've been processing everything. And I had many frank conversations with the Lord where I was just like, I'm done. Like, if this keeps going on, I'm out and I'm not going to feel bad about it. And the Lord really worked overtime on me this week to be like, 
this is not how it's going to continue to be. And I was like, bro, you better hold up that end of the promise because I will leave. <laughs> I will leave this club like it's closing time, okay? If it's just here to hurt people, then there's no reason for us to be here. Yeah. Pretty much. And we completely understand that. On the hopefully bright side, we do believe that things can change, that we believe these policies can change because it's not, it's not truth. It's just, it's just policy. It's what's the, what's the phrasing we always use? They're stuck in their time. They are. They're a product of their time. Yes. Thank you. They're a product of their time. I firmly believe that that's what the situation is because if you hear um, how they've been talking about the LGBTQ plus community over the years, they've used that same kind of language and those same defenses and those same um, fallacies for other situations, such as having the racial ban before and having polygamy or removing polygamy. And so they're just using their fallacies. They're using words that doesn't really mean anything that don't really mean anything to them anymore. And we need to understand that they're not perfect, that they're not always speaking for God, that we can turn to God for our own revelation and rely upon our heavenly parents to show us the light, to show us the truth. Whether we do it within or without the church, then we do whatever's best for us ultimately. Exactly. So we just wanted to share those few thoughts about the Holland debacle of 2021, honestly. And we hope that you guys are doing what you need to do to take care of yourselves, both spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, so you can get through this as well. It's not going to be easy to reconcile your feelings and your testimony and your thoughts about this whole process. We are still in the process of doing so. I think we are both in a better headspace than we were two weeks ago when this happened, but it is... It is still a long road ahead of us, so... Still doesn't feel too great, but we're here. We love you guys. Let's just keep breathing, keep trying. So, before we dive into today's crazy topic, we do want to share our exciting news that we've already shared on our social media, because we are absolutely thrilled to be new members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Yay! It's so exciting! For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dialogue, Dialogue is a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion into all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. You can support our podcasts and others in the network by subscribing at DialogueJournal.com. Subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. So make sure you check them out after listening to today's episode. You can learn more at DialogueJournal.com. Yeah. So now on with the show. Let's talk about another terrible topic. (laughs) On to another crazy subject that has been highly problematic and it still stands as an issue within the church. Um, The ever nuanced topic of polygamy. Because this isn't a nightmare. It literally is. It is a nightmare. It is. I was reading church history. Like I dove in more than usual for this for polygamy this topic because I want to like read more into the nuances that I've always put off because I'm just like I'm going to hate this so much. And church history just got weird for me, honestly. That that's like all I can say. Like it got weird. It got uncomfortable. It got really amusing because there were some parts of it that just sound like gossip that they were like spilling up and like, okay, they 
this one was a polygamist, but like they're really just like cheating on each other, like with in this other relationship. It it got weird. I still don't have answers to everything because there's so little clarity on some basic information regarding people who've lived and the real intention behind something. So unfortunately, we are not going to have all the answers today. We're not. It's not possible. Um, we're not the experts on polygamy or church history by any means, but we've done what we can to Are we try being at this point. Like, <laughs> no, we just like to talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Well, and then one other like minor issue that I kept running into is um, it's actually, it was kind of hard for me to find things in like LDS.org regarding polygamy because they like to term it plural marriage as if you know that's more acceptable or like better not that it is because it's all it's all trash it's all the same heap of garbage just with a different brand of trash bag on it yes a rose can smell good as with any name and trash is still trash with any other name yeah so but yeah, so let's kind of unfurl and do what we can a little bit. Um, we looked into some journals, historic documents, and we're here to share what we can. Yeah. So this is going to be crazy. Okay, so we're going to dive in and just kind of start at the beginning and see how we can go from there. So we're starting with Joseph Smith because, of course, it starts with Joseph Smith. Um, so this is because of him, you guys. Most of the revelations that he was receiving during his time, they kind of matched a pattern. We can see it first in the story of the first vision. Joseph Smith has a question. He studies it out prayerfully, and then he turns to the Lord for guidance. The weird thing is, though, of course, is that he didn't write as much as we think he did. It was other people writing and journaling for him. So that's one thing to highlight. But the earliest reference that we could find for Joseph Smith talking about polygamy is in 1831. And that's when he shared that he had visions about his future plural wives. Like most doctrine that Joseph Smith received, it was because he had been asking about it. So while it didn't become official in the church until the 1850s, the drama began a few years prior after he started like sharing a little bit with just a few chosen people about like his dreams and everything. He and a few other church members, not everyone, just a few, began to practice it. Okay, so in the Gospel Topics essay of Plural Marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo, which is a very excellent and informative essay, I invite everyone to read on the church website. It says that the revelation on plural marriage was not written down until 1843, but its early verses suggest that part of it emerged from Joseph Smith's study of the Old Testament in 1831. The revelation, recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 132, states that Joseph prayed to know why God justified Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and Solomon in having many wives. The Lord responded that he had commanded them to enter into the practice. So Joseph knew the practice of plural marriage would stir up public ire. After receiving the commandment, he taught a few associates about it, but he did not spread this teaching widely in the 1830s. My problem here is that I feel like he studied this out and he's like, hey, should I do this too? That's the vibe I get from this, and it's very bothersome because that's not the question I would be. I w- I would not ask that. I don't want that answer. I would not ask that. I almost wonder if he did ask that question because, like, from this quote, I mean, I haven't read the article. I'm sorry, but like from this quote, it sounds like he just asked, like, 
can you please explain to me why those dudes did it? And then the Lord said, oh, I commanded them to enter into it. And so then Joseph was like, cool. Well, since you commanded them, guess I'm going to do it too. And then he just went (laughs) off to do it. Like, I feel Uh. (laughs) like there's a step missing in this article. Like something is missing. Like that question of him being like, should I do it too? (laughs) That piece is missing for me. And maybe it's there, but like. It is there. Should I dive in deeper? Yes, please. It's going to get more problematic, Tracy. It gets worse. Awesome. <laughs> it gets worse. It's it's just we're going downhill. We've 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 tripped and we are now rolling down the hill and it's only gonna get worse. <laughs> so let's let's Great. do this. Let's put on your helmet. Let's go. So the article continues, when God commands a difficult task, he sometimes sends additional messengers to encourage his people to obey. Consistent with this pattern. Joseph told associates that an angel appeared to him three times between 1834 and 1842 and commanded him to proceed with plural marriage when he hesitated to move forward. During the third and final appearance, the angel came with a drawn sword, threatening Joseph with destruction unless he went forward and obeyed the commandment fully. Okay. So there's that, but, and I I don't like it, but I am already suspecting this. Because I don't feel like anyone's any of the angels had since been violent with Joseph before. Mm-mm. So why would violence be enforced, be suggested then? I, I shouldn't, but like I've got to. I see a plot hole. Yes. It does not match up. I do understand and I'm glad that it mentions that he hesitated and everything. Because I mean, not only would it stir up public ire... Um, but his wife would not be interested in that. And she definitely was not. I mean, mm-hmm. they tried very hard to be together. Joseph and ever like they'd eloped, like their marriage was not an easy one for any reason. So for him to, con- to end up pushing something like that means that he was extremely determined. So maybe yeah, an angel and God did tell him to go into plural marriage and do that. But that part doesn't really match up, and it's just problematic, that's all. It's a little suspicious. Yes. So, let's dive in to what happens next. This is from the article as well. Fragmentary evidence suggests that Joseph Smith acted on the angel's first command by marrying a plural wife named Fanny Alger in Kirtland, Ohio, in the mid-1830s. Which, side note, if he did have an angel appear to him in the beginning of 1834, then that means, like, he did, he obeyed right after. Mm-hmm. So this isn't matching up, but this is what we've been given. All right. So then, okay, the article continues. Several Latter-day Saints who had lived in Kirtland reported decades later that Joseph Smith had married Alger, who lived and worked in a Smith household, after he had obtained her consent and that of her parents. Little is known about this marriage, and nothing is known about the conversations between Joseph and Emma regarding Alger. After the marriage with Alger ended in separation, Joseph seems to have set the subject of plural marriage aside until after the church moved to Nauvoo, Illinois. So basically, that feels like he wanted to do a trial run. Yeah. And was like, maybe we'll pick this up later. Yeah. I don't know. All right. So... We have to consider marriage at that time and what plural marriage meant for everyone. So some people were still having arranged marriages at this time in America in the early 1830s. The LDS Gospel Topics essay for plural marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo says, quote, 
By Joseph Smith's time, many couples insisted on marrying for love, as he and Emma did when they eloped against her parents' wishes. Latter-day Saints' motives for plural marriage were often more religious than economic or romantic. Besides the desire to be obedient, a strong incentive was the hope of living in God's presence with family members. In the Revelation on Marriage, the Lord promised participants crowns of eternal lives and exaltation in the eternal worlds. Men and women, parents and children, ancestors and progeny were to be sealed to each other, their commitment lasting into the eternities, consistent with Jesus' promise that the priesthood ordinances performed on earth should be bound in heaven. The first plural marriage in Nauvoo took place when Louisa Beeman and Joseph Smith were sealed in 1841. Joseph married many additional wives and authorized other Latter-day Saints to practice plural marriage. This practice spread slowly at first, but by June 1844, when Joseph Smith was martyred, approximately 29 men and 50 women had entered into plural marriage, in addition to Joseph and his wives. When the saints entered the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, at least 196 men and 521 women had entered into plural marriages. Participants in these early plural marriages pledged to keep their involvement confidential, though they anticipated a time when the practice would be publicly acknowledged, end quote. That is such a huge jump. That's insane. That is so many. 29 men and 50 women to 196 men and 521 women. How were people so chill with this and so like, okay? Oh my gosh. I don't even like to share food with people and you're expecting me to share a husband? (laughs) Like, what the heck? No, no, no. No, it's no, no. So much. It's so weird. I hmm, still have issues. I, I will always have issues with this. Um, it's so weird. It's also been interesting, and it's been, and I'll mention this a little bit later. But the complexities of what a second wife really implies in a relationship and in a marriage definitely has different connotations that aren't very clear. Because I think they didn't want them to be very clear, from what I can tell. Um, because yeah, sometimes my impression as a kid was that they just needed more help in the household. That was like my concept, but it's hard to say if like they were like really trying to like be part of the family. I mean, it definitely wasn't about polyamory at all. I mean, maybe it should have been because you guys should share. But there's also the concept of spiritual wives. Um, so that's that was a thing that I I saw littered throughout this that I do want to highlight. And so I'm pulling from Wikipedia this paragraph, and it says, William Smith, the youngest brother of Joseph Smith and an apostle of and briefly patriarch to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, wrote a little-known pamphlet in late 1844 called The Elder's Pocket Companion, explaining his own views on the differences between the spiritual wife system and plurality of wives. So Smith explained that spiritual wifery was the practice of, one, a Latter-day Saint woman standing as living proxy for her husband's previous civil wife or wives to be sealed to him for all eternity, or two, and or two, unmarried Latter-day Saint women being sealed plurally to men during the millennium. No, I'm not doing that. No? No. I will skip the top tier of the celestial kingdom (laughs) if it means I do not have to marry. It would not be worth it. No. It would be worth it. Nope. Yeah, so that is a fun fact. Let's 
keep going and you guys we're gonna hit the next set of rocks here okay so let's dive in a little bit deeper into the doctrine that we have that is referenced in doctrine and covenants section 132 so the header says that revelation given through joseph smith the prophet at nauvoo illinois recorded in july 1843 relating to the new and everlasting covenant, including the eternity of the marriage covenant and the principle of plural marriage. Although the revelation was recorded in 1843, evidence indicates that some of the principles involved in this revelation were known by the prophet as early as 1831. See official declaration one, which we will be discussing at the end of this episode. So now we're going to do our most favorite thing and read a couple of verses out loud. So we will not read the entire section of 132. We will just be reading verses 61 through 66. It says, And again, as pertaining to the law of the priesthood, if any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another, and the first give her consent, and if he espouse a second, and they are virgins, and have vowed to no other man, then he is justified. He cannot commit adultery, for they are given unto him. For he cannot commit adultery with that, that belongeth unto him and to no one else. And if he have ten virgins given unto him by this law, he cannot commit adultery, for they belong to him, and they are given unto him, therefore he is he justified. But if one or either of the ten virgins, after she is a spouse, shall be with another man, she has committed adultery, and shall be destroyed, for they are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth, according to my commandment and to fulfill the promise which was given by my Father before the foundation of the world, and for their exaltation in the eternal worlds, that they may bear the souls of men. For herein is the work of my Father continued, that he may be glorified. And again, verily, verily, I say unto you, if any man have a wife who holds the keys of this power, and he teaches unto her the law of my priesthood, as pertaining to these things, then shall she believe and administer unto him, or she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord your God, for I will destroy her, for I will magnify my name upon all those who receive and abide in my law. Therefore it shall be lawful in me, if she receive not this law, for him to receive all things whatsoever I, the Lord his God, will give unto him. Because she did not believe, and administer unto him according to my word, and she then becomes the transgressor, and he is, is exempt from the law of Sarah, who administered unto Abraham according to the law which I commanded Abraham to take Hagar to wife. And now pertaining to this law, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will reveal more unto you hereafter. Therefore, let this suffice for the present. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega. Amen. Hmm. I hate this so much for so many reasons. I would love to actually nitpick this and explain why I do have issues with this. Um, because it seems that no one ever is there to administer unto the woman. And she doesn't really have a choice. Because it even says if she disagrees, the husband can still take another wife. So she doesn't ultimately matter. It very much sets the woman in the corner to do whatsoever the man wills. Because the God is only his God and not her God. And it ends like with such an oomph. It's like a big finale thing. Like there's a mic drop basically, which I, it, it just feels weird. I don't know why it is here. It doesn't feel right. And then there's, there's continual talk about virgins and I need to know what happens if they're not virgins. Mm -hmm. Like what then does that change anything? 
I have so many questions and I have so many issues with this and that's only half of them. So this this section of Doctrine and Covenants also highlights Abraham and Sarah. And from what we know about the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was married to Sarah but was also under no condemnation for taking Hagar as a second wife because the Lord had commanded him to do so. According to the Revelation, other ancient prophets, in addition to Abraham, had the keys or authority from God to participate in or perform plural marriages, and those who received plural wives under the direction of these prophets stood blameless before God. The stipulation of prophetic direction meant that the practice was carefully controlled. However, those who took plural wives on their own initiative faced serious consequences. Joseph Smith believed that this ancient authority had been conferred upon him as part of the Latter-day Restoration of the keys and power of the priesthood, and that his authorization of plural marriages was justified before God. With these checks in place, a man could legitimately take multiple wives to multiply and replenish the earth and for their exaltation in the eternal life. While plural marriages were undertaken without Joseph Smith's direct consent and approval were deemed unauthorized and adulterous instead and it's kind of wild like in a way i understand that like those ones are condemned and adulterous but at the same time it's like do you know that like these other ones were commanded by god like abraham and these other prophets or well in that situation you'd have to be each person would specifically have to be commanded to be a part of it in one way or another because you're not allowed you're not really supposed to receive revelation for each other unless you're a direct leader of the church so does that mean that joseph was getting revelation on who was allowed to be in a plural marriage and who wasn't was it all just coming from him that's what i believe the insinuation would have been and i believe like i think there's also another doctrine and covenant section where it's like this other person should get involved in a relationship kind of thing don't hold me to that but that's what i feel like is the case and joseph smith from what i can tell definitely took the lead on it as long as he was alive but that he he died in 1844 and their practice continued what until the 1890s i think it was well that was also because we know brigham young was a huge advocate of yes polygamy so Yes. So was he directing all of those, what, nearly 200 men, 500 women into each relationship? Or was he just saying, do what you want? Or telling just the men, take who you will? All good questions that I don't have the answer to. I feel like this life is a time meant for me to learn how to become an investigator and learn how to ask the right questions so I can spend eternity making sense of all of this. And just peppering those people with questions. Yes. They will not escape me. Bothering them for eternity. I need so much information. I need all these answers. I mean, I guess, okay, technically, if they can reach that whole, like, top, top level in the social kingdom, and if, then if I can't go there, I will be waiting at the doorway the moment they step out and I'll be like, we're talking. We also got to remember that Elder Gong and President Ballard both said at conference six months ago that your eternal 
salvation or whatever does not depend on your marital status. So, I mean. That's true. And technically, my parents have been sealed, right? So that would qualify me as well. Like, that's the one qualification I might need to be in the celestial in the top. Like, some kind of sealing. Listen, Linda, I'm not going to say yes because I don't know. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> I don't, know what, I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> I don't know the semantics of all of this. We'll figure it out when we die. That's okay. I can I I can wait. I I'm willing to wait. But the moment I do die and the moment I'm in the next life, I will do everything I can to learn all these answers because I'll be hollering my questions from the terrestrial kingdom. That's where I'll be representing. Like, <laughs> yo, the party's out here. Answer my questions. But Anyways, okay, moving on. <laughs> All right, so, oh, okay, I did want to dive in into a specific situation where a particular relationship does get referenced in the scriptures, basically. So, Joseph Smith recorded on Wednesday, July 27th, 1842, revelation for him and his friend, Newell K. Whitney. And he says that it's time for him, Joseph Smith, to take Newell K. Whitney's daughter, Sarah Ann Whitney, as wife saying that they shall take each other by the hand and you shall say you both mutually agree, calling them by name, to be each other's companion so long as you both shall live, preserving yourselves for each other and from all others and also throughout eternity, reserving only those rights which have been given to my servant Joseph by revelation and commandment and by legal authority in times past. If you both agree to covenant and to do this, then I give you... Sarah and Whitney, my daughter, to Joseph Smith, to be his wife, to observe all the rights between you both that belong to the condition. I do it in my own name, and in the name of my wife, your mother, and in the name of my holy progenitors, by the right of birth, which is of priesthood vested. So Joseph Smith is like saying, here, say this. I'm going to give you a piece of paper. Say this so that I can marry your daughter, who is a lot younger than me. Diving in a little bit deeper, just for some basic background information, the Whitneys and Smiths had been friends at this time for over 10 years. So when Joseph and Emma arrived in Kirtland, they stayed with the Whitneys in their house and above their shop. So they were friends for 10 years. So not only, so here's the thing. Sarah Ann Whitney is one of Joseph Smith's best known plural wives, along with Eliza R. Snow, which I did not. And here's the thing. Sarah Ann was born in 1825, making her 20 years younger than Joseph Smith. In the year of this revelation, 1842, she was turning 17 years old. It's even noted in Joseph's journals um, that they, they attended her 17th birthday party. And then when you also think about it a little bit more, he'd known her since she was seven. I mean, we're already 30, but like things like five years back, Tracy... And then, like, thinking about the thinking about those seven year olds and being like, "I'm gonna marry one someday." No, no, no. And I mean, just just for a note, Joseph's plural wives would be a variety of ages. I don't remember the oldest. I think they were around th uh, thirty or so, but the youngest was fifteen years old. So, don't mind us screaming. Nope, 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 nope. Don't like that. Don't like it at all. Right. Okay. So here is one of the nuanced factors, which makes this situation a little tricky or complicated to understand. So we do know a bit about Sarah Ann Whitney. We know that she and Joseph Smith were married July 27th, 1842. Um, and then they were married until June 27th, 1844. However, we can't find a marriage certificate of that. 
We only have one for her marrying Joseph Kingsbury, who was a close friend of Joseph Smith's on April 29th, 1843, which is in between that timeline of her marriage to Joseph Smith. So that's like complicated things, and I can't find enough information that I want to. But from my findings, it's believed that it was a sham or a show wedding between, sorry, Sarah Ann Whitney and Joseph Kingsbury so that they could have hide the real union between Sarah Ann Whitney and Joseph Smith. So from my understanding, that's what they would do. They'd put together fake certificates and fake marriages so that they could have their quote unquote real ones, just unofficial. And truthfully, when you do look deeper into it, the thing is these certificates and these marriages are put together by Joseph Smith himself and even his father, Joseph Smith, the elder, but neither of them were legally allowed or had the right to be married people. And it wasn't like legal to really marrying a second wife or anything at the time. So none of that was legally done. I mean, Joseph Smith's father would eventually even be arrested for his illegal marriage officiating. See, it's, it's just got those like all those like really weird pinpoints where it's like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. You look at it like you see the whole picture and you're like, okay, this is just a really big mess. And that's honestly what it all is. That's why polygamy is such a weird topic because everything's so insane and backwards and you have to gather what you can from people's journals most of the time because not everything's going to be crystal clear. Just yikes. Yeah. So it's, it is so weird. So although the Lord commanded the adoption and later the cessation of plural marriage in the latter days, he did not give exact instructions on how to obey the commandment, similarly to how he does every commandment that he gives us in this life. Significant social and cultural changes often include misunderstandings and difficulties, where church members and leaders experienced these challenges as they heeded the command to practice plural marriage, and again later as they worked to discontinue it after church president Wilford Woodruff issued the inspired statement known as the Manifesto in 1890. Um, this led to the end of plural marriage in the church. Through it all, church leaders and members sought to follow God's will. Many details about the practice of plural marriage are unknown. The early practice, I should say. Plural marriage was introduced among the saints incrementally, and participants were asked to keep their actions confidential because, like Kaylee had just explained, it was illegal in the United States at this point in time. They did not discuss their experiences publicly or in writing until after the saints had moved to Utah and church leaders had publicly acknowledged the practice. The historical record of early plural marriage is therefore very thin. Few records of the time provide details and later reminiscences are not always reliable. Some ambiguity will always accompany our knowledge about this issue to this day and Sometimes the participants were told to just, you know, it's like seeing through a glass darkly and they were asked to walk by faith and just trust that this is the Lord's will. I find this interesting because I do remember learning briefly about polygamy in a Sunday school lesson years and years and years ago when I was a teenager. And the way that it was presented to me in that lesson was that polygamy was introduced to be like extended home teaching almost like it was intended as a way 
for widows with children and farms and property to be looked after and to be able to keep their land to sustain their families. So it was almost like, I'm Tracy, I'm a widow now, I am going to marry Joseph Smith so that way I can keep my property, continue to sustain my family, but I don't actually have to be in a relationship with him. Like, it's literally just to, like, sign a paper and say that I can keep my stuff. Okay, that's interesting. So that's how I was taught it as a kid. And that from there, it quickly devolved because people were like, ha ha ha, I can have multiple spouses. I'm gonna do that. So it's interesting for me to see more about this because it's very clear to me now that like this is not how it was intended whatsoever and that my teacher was confused i like that idea significantly better than what the actual reality is but the fact of the matter is we have to live in reality and not this fantasy world <laughs> so it's just it's very interesting to see right? all of this coming out now <laughs> that is i i had not heard of that before which only further shows how weird this subject is not just because of like all that happened but like the concept is very unclear to everyone and it's a mess because no one will actually like teach the like what actually happened like people won't teach the actual history of it in church and we just immediately go like, oh, polygamy, it was something that we practiced over 150 years ago. We don't do that anymore. And they quickly like just dismiss it instead of actually talking about it and teaching people about it. Okay, that and a lot of people will say, yeah, and then we'll, you know, practice this again at another time, but we don't have to worry about it. And I uh, I have problems with both of those ideas i don't want to practice it in the future and you can't just think that it's going to suddenly work out even though it was clearly a mess in the 19th century we gotta lay down the terms you guys and then deny them <laughs> again y'all if this is what eternity is gonna look like i want no part of it i want no part of it put me in another kingdom put me in outer darkness if you must I want no part of this if this is what my eternity is looking like. <laughs> Honestly, as an eternity of just like being by myself and having some peace and quiet, <laughs> like give it to me at this point. Oh, gosh. So <laughs> let's let's go on a little bit, see what Joseph Smith is up to. So continuing the practice he had begun earlier, he married several women as plural wives during this first six months covered in the journals that are presented within the Joseph Smith papers. I pulled a lot of material there, by the way. It is very informational, very insightful, very helpful. All right, so several of his close associates, including Willard Richards and William Clayton, also married plural wives in Nauvoo. While relatively few numbers of the church were aware of these plural marriages, Rumors that something of the sort was taking place were rampant, especially after John C. Bennett publicly accused Joseph Smith in 1842 of having multiple spiritual wives. Believing the practice to be legitimate only under his direction as prophet and church president, Joseph Smith emphasized the general standard that no man shall have but one wife and directed Richards to discipline those who were preaching and teaching the doctrine of plurality of wives on their own. 
In a rare exception to his practice of not noting plural marriages in these journals, Richards, who was helping write them, recorded in shorthand Smith's marriage to Rhoda Richards, Willard's older sister, on June 12, 1843, as well as his own plural marriage to Susan Liptrot on the same date. Though Emma Smith evidently agreed to and even attended at least some of these marriages, carefully worded entries in these journals and evidence from other sources indicate that by the summer of 1843, she would no longer countenance them. Most of these plural, plural marriages took place before this date, July 12, 1843, the day Joseph Smith dictated the revelation explaining that a man was permitted to have multiple wives if God commanded it. After two additional plural marriages, one in September and another in November, Smith appears to have stopped marrying new plural wives. Every sentence I read just keeps getting worse, you guys. And I don't like how that concept gets presented here because it's like saying, I wanted to do this. Smith wanted to do this. And then he has to defend himself. He's like, no, yeah, it's totally fine. But I'm also going to stop now. It, it just, the timing's weird to me. The Joseph Smith Papers uh, introduction, it's the introduction to Journals Volume 3, by the way. Okay, so this it continues saying the same revelation that explained the conditions under which a man could take plural wives also explained the principle of eternal marriage, whereby a man and woman who are sealed as man and wife by one holding the proper priesthood authority would pass by the angels and the gods to their exaltation and glory after death. Such sealings were an integral part of many, perhaps all, of Joseph Smith's plural marriages, as evidenced by several of his pl plural wives later testifying that they had been married or sealed to him for time and eternity. An entry in shorthand in Joseph Smith's journals suggests that he and Emma, who had been married civilly in 1827, were sealed for eternity on May 28, 1843. One of his close associates, James Adams, was evidently sealed to his wife on the same day, and other trusted friends were sealed to their current spouses over the ensuing months. So these sealing ceremonies generally took place in meetings of church members who had earlier participated in rituals or ordinances that would later be, be performed in the Nauvoo Temple. I feel like that's what gives the oomph the validity that so many people like to use when it comes to validating polygamy or plural marriage is because it was provided and shared at the same time as um, the concept of eternal marriage, which we do take very seriously and we do very much practice and highly prioritize in the church today. All I can say with this is like, it's no wonder Emma didn't follow them West. Oh, yeah. Y'all give that poor woman a break. She had to watch all of her kids die after giving birth to them. She had to watch her husband, who she disobeyed her parents for and basically got cut off from her family for, marry other women, and she was just expected to be okay with all of that. Give that poor woman a break and, like, give her some respect because she didn't end up murdering that man, and Lord knows I would have. I would have killed him multiple times if I had been in her position shoot honestly yes and i mean i know there's definitely been some talk that there were some ceilings that she did and or and or marriages that she did approve of so i would like to believe that she was at some point satisfied in our relationship with joseph smith no matter their situation because from my understanding she was like that most of the time but the things she went through 
And especially this situation that I don't really feel from my research that she ever did become ultimately comfortable with the idea. That just breaks my heart for her. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's interesting that during the era in which plural marriage was practiced, Latter-day Saints distinguished between ceilings for time and eternity and ceilings for eternity only, which is one thing I have heard about. So ceilings for time and eternity included commitments and relationships in this life, generally including the possibility, maybe, of sexual relationships. Maybe? Not not clear at all. And then eternity-only ceilings indicated relationships in the next life alone. I think those are the relationships that I've heard of that Emma was okay with. So from what we can find, found in the Gospel Topics essay, states that evidence indicates that Joseph Smith participated in both types of ceilings. The exact number of women to whom he was sealed in his lifetime is unknown because the evidence is fragmentary. So we literally do not know how many women Joseph Smith married or was sealed to in this lifetime. We, we don't. And then some of the women who were sealed to Joseph Smith later testified that their marriages were for time and eternity, while others indicated that their relationships were for eternity alone. So we do have some information giving us that guidance in that direction. All right. So we've already stated that most of those who are sealed to Joseph Smith were between, mostly between 20 and 40 years old with a few outliers. The oldest, Fanny Young, was 56 years old. The youngest was Helen Mark Kimball, daughter of Joseph's close friends, Heber C. and Villate or Villati Murray Kimball. And Helen... Mark Kimball, she married him months before her 15th birthday, actually. Oh. And, I mean, I hate to say this, but it technically, it was an inappropriate by today's standards. Yes, but it was technically legal in that era. So some women did marry in their mid-teens, but actually from my research, the majority of them did marry in their 20s. And then Helen Mark Kimball, we do have record of her that um, her saying that her sealing to Joseph was for being for eternity alone, suggesting that the relationship did not involve sexual relations. Then after Joseph's death, Helen remarried and became an articulate defender of him and of plural marriage. So that's interesting. And I'm honestly curious if she was permitted to be sealed to the other man that she married later down in her life. Oh, yeah, true. Good point. All right, so continuing in the essay, following his marriage to Louisa Beeman and before he married other single women, Joseph Smith was sealed to a number of women who were already married. Neither these women nor Joseph explained much about these sealings, <clears throat> though several women said they were for eternity alone. Other women left no records, making it unknown whether their sealings were for time and eternity or were for eternity alone. So this is the interesting part. And that's some, this is actually something that I've been thinking a lot more about lately, especially after reading Blair Osler's Queer Mormon Theology, because she does talk about ceilings for a bit in there. And it's very fascinating. It was my favorite section. Um, so the essay does point out that there are several possible explanations for this practice of plural marriage. These ceilings may have provided a way to create an eternal bond or a link between Joseph's family and other families within the church. Which I think to me is really the only valid way of having that a reason for creating that connection is to create links, not like romantic relationships, but everlasting links and relationships that will last throughout eternity. 
that just helps you say like, yes, we're connected and we will find each other easier among the millions and billions of people in in eternity. To me, that's the only thing that makes sense in this situation. So now we're going to talk a little bit about everyone's reactions to the prophet's announcement introducing plural marriage. You mean not everyone loved this, Tracy? Apparently not, Kaylee. It's very surprising. But yeah, apparently not everyone was a fan. If Joseph had received this revelation personally, then how would he decide to share this information? He obviously did not have Twitter. Um, He didn't know that he'd get canceled if he made this sort of explanation or declaration. He did know. He knew. Oh, he knew? He knew. Everyone would be like, you suck. No one is listening to you ever again. All right. That's my personal belief. He decided to send the message person to person. The accounts vary on this. While there isn't specific proof, it does seem likely that the person he may have and definitely should have spoken to first about this topic was his wife, Emma. Um, Again, like we discussed already, she never really reconciled to the idea. She had gone to St. Louis and upon coming back, found out about this whole revelation and she threatened to divorce Joseph Smith over this. It's noted in history that visitors to the Smith home during this time of the revelation noted that there was palpable tension, which I mean, duh, like, obviously. The fact that Joseph Smith was still in the house at all, like... The fact that he was still breathing is impressive. Okay, let's be honest. He'd be buried in the backyard. I'd be like, oh, he's just outside. You can see him some other time. Anyways, so as we already know from history and also from the Gospel Topics essays, this was an excruciating ordeal for Emma. There are records of Emma's reactions to plural marriage that are very, very sparse. She left no firsthand accounts regarding this, um, which makes it very difficult and nearly impossible to reconstruct her thoughts. We know that they married for love. And they loved and respected each other very deeply. And after he had entered into plural marriage, Joseph poured out his feelings in his journal for his, quote, beloved Emma, whom he described as, quote, undaunted, firm and unwavering, unchangeable, affectionate Emma. And then as Kaylee and I have already discussed, like Emma approved, at least for a little bit, of four of Joseph's additional wives in Nauvoo and she accepted them into her household. Um, She may have approved of other marriages as well, but she likely did not know about all of Joseph's ceilings, and she often switched her viewpoints on plural marriage. Sometimes she would support it, and other times she would be vehemently denouncing it. I feel like, again, we need to give this poor woman a break. I know there are so many members of the church that are hypercritical of her, but like put yourself in her shoes again in this moment and just think how you would handle it if your husband decided to marry like 70 women. Like that's not cool. On top of everything else, like you mentioned, she was already going through. And I know it's easy to cut out and pretend that there's not a lot of importance or validity when it comes to emotions. For certain situations, um, a lot of people just like to invalidate them and be like, oh, yeah, you're just feeling butthurt, like kind of thing. It's not about being butthurt. It's not about pride. It's about 
feeling completely betrayed and hurt in a very serious relationship that you have completely prioritized with your life. I mean, we're not married, but we understand that there is importance to the union. And you don't just willy-nilly go like, yeah, I'm going to grab someone else and bring her right in, because why not? You're going to grab your death at the same time, sir. <sighs> Anyways, okay, let's uh, move forth. All right, let's let's dive in a little bit into the, the nitty-gritty weird parts. Okay, so as we've discussed, we're trying to figure out a little bit more what the context of these re- relationships are. Yes, yes. Yeah, so sometimes they were for eternity alone, sometimes they were for life. What did that mean as well? Because it is so nuanced, there's little information about it. The men would write their own things, but of course, that's still their interpretations. And we don't have a lot of voices from the women who really, who were the ones who went through most of this, like the majority of it. Like there were over 500 women who went through this. So, I mean, yeah, sometimes it was just a spiritual wife or a helpmeet, but then sometimes they're also treated as actual wives. And so the Joseph Smith Papers site says that there is insufficient evidence to conclude that all Nauvoo plural marriages or ceilings were consummated. Although Joseph Smith had many children with Emma, no progeny from any of his plural marriages have been identified. In the LDS Manual for Plural Marriage, it states that the challenge of introducing a principle as controversial as plural marriage is almost impossible to ever state. A spiritual witness of its truthfulness allowed Joseph Smith and other Latter-day Saints to accept this principle. And then as difficult as it was, the introduction of plural marriage in Nauvoo did indeed raise up seed unto God. A substantial number of today's members descend through (laughs) your face. I know. A substantial number of today's members descend through faithful Latter-day Saints who practice plural marriage. No, thank you. Nothing you. William Clayton does provide some of the best co- contemporaneous evidence that at least some plural marriages ha- in Nauvoo during Joseph Smith's lifetime did involve conjugal relations. That's <laughs> so kindly put. It sounds like prison. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, okay, but the thing is, also on the July 12th, 1843 revelation on plural marriage, it doesn't provide any doctrinal reason for why any authorized plural marriage could not have included such relations. It doesn't get that specific. It just says a man can have more wives. That's that's it. It's it's up for interpretation, just like, you yes. know, the law of chastity and the word of wisdom and Ugh. everything else. Great. Yeah. So as written in the Joseph Smith Papers um, and the Introduction to Journals Volume 2, it states that given the sensitivity of this topic, it is no surprise that clear references to plural marriage are virtually absent from Joseph Smith's Nauvoo journals. Some entries, however, may be best understood, or at least partially understood, in light of the practice, although a significant amount of ambiguity... <laughs> remains even after a careful examination of the context and supporting sources. So, for example, a revelation in December 1841 for Miranda Nancy Johnson Hyde. It's it's revelation for her. It closes by counseling her to hearken to the counsel of my servant Joseph in all things whatsoever he shall teach unto her, and it shall be a blessing upon her and upon her children after her. Decades later, Hyde reported that this revelation had been delivered to her shortly after Joseph Smith had taught her the doctrine of celestial marriage and that she followed the counsel of the 
Prophet Joseph, as above instructed, and continued to hope for the fulfillment and the promises and blessings contained in the, in the Revelation. In addition, in a May 1869 affidavit signed by Hyde, it attests that she was married or sealed to Joseph Smith during that time back in May 1843. So, assuming Hyde's memory accurately reflects upon the events during, you know, 1841 and 1843, and that the doctrine of celestial marriage about which she learned including, included plural marriage, it would be reasonable to conclude that the Revelation's reference to all things whatsoever, Smith would teach her, included a marriage or a sealing to the Mormon leader. But Joseph Smith could have canceled Hyde about many other things in 1841 as well, technically. Her husband, Orson Hyde of the Quorum of the Twelve, for example, had left on a mission to Europe and then the Middle East in April 1840, leaving Hyde and her children to rely on others for much of their support until his return in December 1842. So it could be that Joseph Smith sent her husband on a mission and then it was like let's get hitched it's a little sus a little sus there for you and it's just a little bit a little bit yeah yeah all right so and then as, as we mentioned um so several later documents suggest that several women who were already married to other men like Miranda Hyde were also married or sealed to Joseph Smith available evidence indicates that some of these apparent polygynous or polyandrous marriages took place during the years covered by the, by those journals. And at least three of the women reportedly involved in these marriages, which were Patty Bartlett Sessions, Ruth Bose Sayers, and Sylvia Porter Lyon, are mentioned in the journal, though in context very much removed from plural marriage. They're referenced, but not in reference to plural marriage exactly. So even the fewer sources are extant for these complex relationships than are available for Smith's marriages to unmarried women. So there's even less talked about them. And then Smith's revelations are completely silent on them. He only talks about those who he married when they, when they weren't already married. So a historian, Russian L. Bushman, then concludes that these polyandrous marriages and perhaps some of the other plural marriages that Joseph Smith had were primarily a means of binding other families to his for the spiritual benefit and mutual salvation to all involved. So I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I just thought this was very interesting and it shows the complexities and the weirdness of what plural marriage was and could be for people during that time and the potential that it included for everyone. Oh gosh. And that kind of leads perfectly into some of the big problems that came into play as plural marriage began, in case we haven't already covered enough of them. One of the big problems was that a few men would use plural marriage as a way to seduce women to join them into the unauthorized practice, sometimes referred to as spiritual wifery. Of course, because men, just because men. Um, so the gospel essay plural marriage in kirtland and nauvoo says when this was discovered the men were cut off from the church the rumors prompted members and leaders to issue carefully worded denials that denounced spiritual wivery and polygamy but were silent about what joseph smith said and others saw as divinely mandated celestial plural marriage 
These statements emphasize that the church practiced no marital law other than monogamy while implicitly leaving open the possibility that individuals under direction of God's living prophet might do so, end quote. So we have already hit this in this episode, but we know that people cannot fully be trusted (laughs) to do the right thing all the time. As we can see through hundreds of years of world history, that anytime, I'm going to say it, anytime a man is given an option to do something that could be not good, specifically benefiting him sexually, I'm going to say that, um, he will take that opportunity and he will exploit it to the best of his abilities. Um, I'm going to say not all men in this situation, because I know there are some people on the other end of this podcast listening that are saying not all men. And technically, yes, not all men. Yes. But yes. Um, in this case, um, a lot, a lot of men. We know there are good men. We know this. We know many good men. But we also know that many will take advantage of what they can. Yeah. The other problem is that the revelation on plural marriage required that a wife give her consent before her husband could enter into plural marriage. However, towards the end of the revelation, the Lord said that if the first wife received not this law, then like the husband is exempt from it and he can do whatever he wants, basically. So So it really just uh. makes no sense. It's very contradictory. I personally feel like this revelation was not actually from God and it was just out of the minds of men personally, but that's the gospel. According to Tracy, this is not fact. This is just my musings, if you will. There were some other problems as well. Like most of the marriages were done by people who weren't legally authorized to do these marriages, like Joseph Smith's father, for example, like we explained already. And it really entangled issues at the time in both liberal and conservative manners regarding marriage and divorce. For example, there was at least one couple whom Joseph Smith married himself while the woman was still married to a man that she had left because he was a drunkard, but she wasn't able to divorce him. Like, so she was still married, but then she was also married to Joseph Smith. So it was like she was also in a polygamous relationship, like, but backwards. Polygynous, I think, is when yeah. a woman is married to two men, right? Yeah. Um, which I can hardly say the word because it's never used for any kind of situation. Yeah. It's always polygamy. Because it always benefits the dude. Yes, it does. Patriarchy ruins the party once again. As usual. It just ties into a very interesting issue, though. All these problems deal with legal complications. And our church has always been pretty strong on the idea that, yeah, we do follow the law. We follow like our kings and our magistrates and everything. We're going to do the right thing and worship how we can. Except from 1831 to 1890, where we were very much fighting the law and running away from it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) There's no if, ands, or buts about it. Like, we were literally running away from the law to the point where, like, the U.S. Supreme Court had to throw down multiple warnings to the church and be like, y'all need to stop. And they were like, but mom, no, I like this. Five more minutes. Pretty much, yeah. Although it's interesting that not everyone did like plural marriage. So the LDS Gospel essay states that some Latter-day Saints rejected the principle of plural marriage and left the church, while others declined to enter the practice but remained faithful. 
Nevertheless, for many women and men, initial revulsion and anguish was followed by struggle, resolution, and ultimately light and peace. Sacred experiences enabled the saints to move forward in faith. So I mean, graded there's there is definitely um, journals and diaries from both men and women during this time during the 19th century of those within plural marriages who did enjoy their experiences. I I won't deny that, but we also do need to give voices to those who were not okay with it because I do feel that we ignore them a lot more. Um, another thing I do want to highlight as we press on just one little tidbit is that. I hope you guys have noticed how we're using the, it's not actually even us, it's all the quotes from the LDS website saying the principle of plural marriage, not like the doctrine of it, which you'll find more centered towards like celestial marriage and everything. So it's the church trying to step away and create that gap of saying, yes, we're totally into polygamy and saying it was kind of the right thing to do but not anymore and never again maybe 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 i think that ties in perfectly with how the image of the church was affected by the practice of polygamy like kaylee said some people accepted it but most did not accept plural marriage they would pray and end up with their own revelation which is exactly what you're supposed to be doing and this inspired people to leave the church and not really encourage anyone to join it during this time. Um, there were those who left willingly and those who were excommunicated from the church. One particular story is the story of John C. Bennett, who was known for his scathing reports and essays. He had been a friend to Joseph Smith and to others, but he quickly switched sides due to more trouble and spoke loudly against polygamy. Um, he even found and was given letters from members about their viewpoints, um, including letters from Joseph Smith talking about polygamy. Bennett would publicly publish them to tarnish the church's view, and he was excommunicated for this purpose. He was, yeah, he was pretty much kicked out, even though, like, he'd done, like, he'd helped build Nauvoo, basically. He'd been, like, deeply involved in everything, and then just everything suddenly kind of exploded, and he ended up leaving and was doing all he could to be outspoken and ruin the everyone's perspective on Joseph Smith and the church, which is very interesting. Honestly, understandable, because if I had been in that position, I probably would have done the same thing. I'm not trying to say that I'm like anti-church or anti-profits or anything, but like if y'all were trying to tell me that I had to be in a plural marriage situation and I am getting alternate revelation from the Lord telling me that I don't need to be doing this and y'all were trying to force it on me, like church would be blown up. There would be no church left. Like Tracy would have removed the church from the earth. Goodness. with the power of dynamite <laughs> c4 and sheer grit so like mm. i know the lord says that the church will never be removed from the earth again but it would have been gone for a hot second like it would have been gone oh my goodness i'd have made it happen yeah it it did not it didn't go well and it was it's such a weird convoluted mess for so many reasons and when you think about it polygamy in the lds church was only practiced publicly publicly technically from 1852 to 1890 
So that's like hardly 40 years. And yet it like, and I feel like in older media, at least if you saw any tropes about Mormons, it's not about us not drinking. It's not about like all the history or anything. It's about the polygamous. Yeah. All of that. I mean, you get that a lot in like, okay, so I grew up reading Louis the Moore's Westerns. He wrote like a hundred books and in nearly every single one, he does mention like Salt Lake or the Mormon polygamist pretty <laughs> much. Okay. And that makes sense. Like I get it. And there's so many things that could be referenced when people talk about the church and yeah, it is the one that's, it's the one that's the most focused on by people outside of the church because it's be, and I'm going to say this. It's because it is the one piece of our history that we are unwilling to discuss. Like, it truly is the one piece of our history that we will not talk about. It is deeply unresolved. We will talk about the priesthood ban. We will talk about the LGBTQ community and the church. We will have those hard discussions. But when it comes to polygamy, everyone immediately changes the topic immediately no one wants to confront the history no one knows the history they will do anything they can to avoid talking about it and so i feel like because we are so hard in this stance of like no 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 we don't talk about this or let's talk about anything else that's why everybody else focuses on that because we are so unwilling to just confront it and say it if we finally do like own up to it and like confront it and address it and say it publicly, people would probably not care as much anymore because we finally let go of the mystery of it. It is the elephant in the room. Yeah. That's a very interesting and very insightful thought. I love that, Tracy. I mean, yeah, when you think about it, there's we don't have a lot of concrete information about how it happened how it worked out and everything. We have all these rumors and varied accounts and everything, but nothing's super clear. And that's because no one wants to get super clear. No one wanted to get clear then, and no one wants to be clear about it now. It's just kind of left us in a weird mess, and everyone wants to know what's going on, including people who are not members of the church. And that is fair. So let's talk about how polygamy finally ended in the church, because let's... I'm tired, y'all. I'm tired of this nonsense. So arrests started happening. <laughs> so it's the only way to make these things stop, just like everything else in America. Joseph Smith had died, persecution was worsening, and the U.S. government was threatening to go after the church. Repeatedly. I have to add that. Repeatedly. So action had to be taken. The practice was removed on September 24th, 1890, with the 1890 Manifesto, which you may be more familiar with it known as Official Declaration 1 at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was given by President Wilford Woodruff in Salt Lake City. President Woodruff explains that in the Bible and Book of Mormon, it is taught that monogamy is God's standard for marriage, unless he declares otherwise and that how Joseph Smith was truly following the Lord in the early 1840s when he instituted plural marriage, and how now, realizing that the U.S. Supreme Court made the practice illegal between the 1860s and the 1880s, President Woodruff decided it was time to ask the Lord if it was time to do away with polygamy. 
He said, quote, I therefore, as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, do hereby in the most solemn manner declare that these charges are false. We are not teaching polygamy or plural marriage, nor permitting any person to enter into its practice. And I deny that either 40 or any other number of plural marriages have during that period been solemnized in our temples or in any other place in the territory, end quote. Even though we know from history that a couple of plural marriages had happened in the Utah Valley during that time um, under the rug. But after pointing out that they had declared their intention to follow Congress's laws in forbidding plural marriage, he used his influence to get the rest of the church to obey and to jump on the bandwagon. And the practice was officially disbanded. Today, it is believed that polygamy may happen again and that women will be quote-unquote grateful for the extra help. I personally feel like this is a myth. I do not believe that this is it. That's the thing, though. Okay, so I had to bring this up because I have always heard this in conversations discussing polygamy. Always. Everyone says it's going to come back. But from what I can find, no one's really saying that's technically the case. I want to say... That you were hearing this because you lived in Utah. I only went to college in Utah. I grew up in California. Same thing. Um, <laughs> this is not something that was discussed well, on the East Coast. Yeah. I think also because everyone on the East Coast would probably shoot their spouse if they said, oh, one day you're going to have <laughs> you're gonna have more help around in eternity because I'm going to have more wives. And they all said, yeah, who would want to marry uh-huh. you? Um, you're insane. Uh-huh. But... Again, if the Lord thinks I'm going to share a husband, he's got another thing coming. If the Lord thinks I am going to share Chris Evans with someone else, (laughs) he's insane. He is out of his mind. And I will put that on my tombstone. I will say it in bold font. If Jesus thinks I'm sharing Chris Evans, he's crazy. That's going to be on my headstone. That's it. (laughs) I love that. Because it's not happening. Um... But (laughs) we do know that there are still polygamous groups in Utah today, and they are practicing their own faith. This is also done in secret through bypassing laws, through frequently moving locations so they can evade persecution, not persecution, prosecution by the law. And you can sometimes see them in public. I will say that I now know two people who grew up in polygamous groups in or near Utah. It is wild, the things that they have lived with and how, like, they said that they're one of 24 children and they were on the smaller side in their community. It's still happening today. Some people believe that polygamy was not supposed to be done away with and that it really is God's will. They are not affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We need to make that important distinction. They are their own thing. I don't want to call them out as being a cult, but they basically are a cult. So, I mean... Do with that information what you will. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. So, yeah. This episode was crazy. We clearly introduced a mess to you. Um, We don't have all the answers. We just have so many more questions that we want answers to. We can't even clean up the mess. We just kind of like, we just kind of pushed you down the hill and made you come with us. We're at the bottom. We don't know what to do. We're 
helmets are dented the rocks are still everywhere and we're about to trip over them again because of all these reasons polygamy is a crazy subject plural marriages is so weird i know we believe in eternal marriage it's an eternal law a celestial law but polygamy not really the case here the main thing is that it was a complicated subject back then and it still is today as we've discussed that's what makes it such an issue honestly at the end of the day it seems that we mostly rely on our personal faith along with what the prophet of our time seems to be saying because as you'll see through time they do kind of tell their own variation of how it was and how it is um, but you can see a lot of the same similar strains going through it and i do want to highlight that at the end of the day the concept of a traditional family that the lds church has been pushing particularly in the last 30-ish years that's that hasn't been around forever the traditional family hasn't always been one man and one woman it wasn't for 40 years at least within the church proclamation of the family is something that came out years ago we do know that we kind of need to mention that at the end of this especially as we've shared our thoughts on holland's talk about the lgbtq plus community because a traditional family is a strange notion that we haven't always believed or relied upon our concept of family is varied besides the fact that we can have an eternal one. That is the basis of it. Personally, like if we've had the belief of polygamy, then it doesn't make any sense to me why they couldn't believe in the LGBTQ plus community having their own families as well, especially since they've been around longer. They've always, we've always been around. Relying on this new version of a traditional family is not the strongest argument that one can have and it's not also it's not a very nice one i want to share some a comment shared by calvin burke um who is a outspoken not a, i don't want to say outspoken but he very much speaks of in every way he can as a byu student part of the lgbtq plus community and he shared recently that for nearly half its history mormonism didn't believe in traditional families. We had that belief quite literally beaten into us by the rest of the world. Now we beat that model of the family into our children. Queer Mormons are the mirror image of our past collective trauma. We cope with the failures of polygamy, not by introspection or honesty about our difficult history, but instead by policing with brutality those in our midst who most easily threatened the ideal that we had beaten into us. I pray we can have the faith and maturity to heal instead. And I just really appreciated those thoughts because it's he's speaking what I've been thinking for, for quite a while, that our idea of what a family is is not always going to be the same, and that's okay. We shouldn't be holding on to trauma or hatred or bigotry of any kind. We need to be opening our hearts and our minds and understanding that everything in this world is a little bit more nuanced and complicated than we can possibly understand. And we're not going to understand everything in this lifetime. At the end of the day, we're just here to love one another, to mourn with those who mourn, to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. Amen. You said it all perfectly, Kaylee. So thank you guys for joining us on this dumpster fire of an episode. It's not really a dumpster fire. It's just the topic is a dumpster fire. This was very well researched, Kaylee, and it 
all the credit goes to you for this one. It still feels like such a mess. Like I put in so much research, so thank you. But I feel like I hardly touched anything and uh, it's going to bug me forever. You know what? Maybe we will come in contact with a church historian and he or she will be able to better explain things for us. That is really my hope at the end of all of this, to be totally honest. Like, make sense of church history for me, please. Somebody. Anybody. Just a reminder, before we close, that our podcast, Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward, is officially now a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. You can subscribe to our podcast at dialoguejournal.com now, as well as other amazing and like-minded podcasts. You'll always get ad-free episodes and bonus content there as well. So check it out, dialoguejournal.com. Yeah, so thank you guys for joining us this week. Again, next week is going to be the start of our LDS school series, and it's going to be a hoot and a half. (laughs) It's going to be crazy. We are going to be covering BYU Provo, BYU-Idaho, and SVU. We will not be covering BYU-Hawaii. I'm sorry because we didn't get anyone to respond that went to BYU Hawaii. I know a couple people, but I couldn't get responses. So I'm sorry, guys. Next time we will have BYU Hawaii in there. Or, you know, if you want to include BYU Hawaii, like send me a DM ASAP and I will make it happen. My DMs are open, everybody. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, so thank you guys for joining us today and we will see you all next week. Yes. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.